NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by letting us know how you listen and completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. We'd really appreciate your help to support NPR podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Thank you. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Now then, the qualifications. Item one, a cheery disposition. I am never cross. Item two, rosy cheeks. Obviously. Item three, play games all sorts. Well, I'm sure the children will find my games extremely diverting. That's Julie Andrews in 1964's Mary Poppins, interviewing for the job of a nanny. A very magical nanny, as it turns out. Mary Poppins was the first film starring Julie Andrews, and it earned her an Academy Award. Here she is, accepting that award. Oh, this is lovely. Uh, I know you Americans are famous for your hospitality, but this is really ridiculous. <laughs> Andrews' second movie was released the following year, 1965. This time, she was a nun-turned-governess. A very life-affirming governess. All right, everybody, over here. What are we going to do? Let's think of something to sing for the Baroness when she comes. Father doesn't like us to sing. Well, perhaps we can change his mind. Now, what songs do you know? We don't know any songs. Not any? We don't even know how to sing. No. Well, let's not lose any time. You must learn. But how? Let's start at the very beginning. That's Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Andrews is the recipient of this year's American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award. Her other films include Victor Victoria, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Torn Curtain, The Princess Diaries films, three Shrek and two Despicable Me films. Recently, she played a sharp-tongued gossip writer in the Netflix series Bridgerton. When Terry spoke to Julie Andrews in 2008, the actress had just released her first memoir. Its title was Home, A Memoir of My Early Years, and it was filled with surprises about her family life. It described her show business start in her parents' vaudeville act and how she went to Broadway when she was still a teenager. Soon afterward, she originated the onstage role of Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Julie Andrews, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, in reading your memoir, I have to say your family life isn't at all what I imagined it would be. I mean, I thought you'd be from a kind of proper, straight-laced <laughs> family based on my idea of who you were from your roles. And um, I wonder what you think your image is and if my mistake is a common one. It is a common one, and a lot of people have been surprised about the book. If you know me very well, you you can probably spot that my background is real good, down-and-out, vaudeville, musical background. But um, a lot of people, because of their association with the wonderful films like <laughs> Mary Poppins and Sound of Music, they think that I am this very squeaky clean upper class lady that um, that came from such a family and it's so far from the truth let's start with the fact that two of your grandparents died of syphilis yes yeah well, i mean uh, my my background is really dickensian in so many ways uh, um 
I was surprised when I found out those facts. It was somewhat of a mystery. It was that awful thing that was just um, out there. And, and it wasn't until I was older that I began to really grasp its significance and, and the, 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 you know, the, the horror of it and what it must have been like. I do know uh, that my aunt, and I write this in the book, said that she didn't want to discuss my grandfather's death because he was in a um, sanatorium that, uh, that was really a sort of madhouse in those days. I mean, you have to think how many years ago this all took place. And uh, it, the conditions were appalling, and, and people were very, very disturbed and mentally ill, and, and um, he apparently had a very nasty time of it and passed away there. Now, your mother was a pianist, and she left her father to perform with a singer named Ted Andrews, who she later married. And they left home during World War II when you were young to perform for the troops. You stayed with your father and your aunt. What was it like to have your mother leave during wartime? Well, I was, uh, I'm going to sound a real Pollyanna here, but um, I was raised during the war. I mean, I was practically born into the war. I think I was two years old or something when war broke out. But so I knew nothing else, Terry. It was, uh, it, it was not so unusual to be raised in war because all my peers were being raised the same way. And we all were in it together. I mean, we went down into the bomb shelters together. We went down into the uh, subway, the underground uh, together and, and um, took refuge from the bombs that were dropping all over London. And, and uh, so it was part of what we did to survive. Will you describe how after your, your mother brought you to London where she was living with the man who became your stepfather, you learned how to distinguish the sound of the British fighter planes from the German fighter planes. That's right. And you'd warn everybody by blowing a whistle <laughs> when a German plane was coming. That's That was probably, probably a pretty important role that you could play well, as a child. Well, I was sent out in all weathers, regardless of, you know, rain or shine or hail or snow. I was sent out by my mother. You, you have to understand that women toward the end of the war could accomplish nothing because the air raid sirens were coming so furiously. Um, and, and every half hour, the siren would go off and a woman would be baking a cake or doing her laundry or any number of things, and she'd have to take it out of the oven or turn off the, the uh, you know, stop washing her clothes and so on. And um, my mother had this great idea that if I, and I, she know, knew that I could distinguish the difference between a German doodlebug, as they were called in those days, those pilotless uh, um, planes that came over and just dropped uh, uh, on London and around London. And I could tell the difference between that and one of our fighter pilots. And so she sent me out to sit on top of our uh, air raid shelter with a pair of opera glasses, which was, were absolutely no good at all, and an umbrella and a whistle. And when I heard the German planes coming, I blew the whistle, which gave her a little bit more time to get on with anything she was doing. But of course, there, there came a day when I truly rebelled and said, I'm not going to do it. It's too wet and it's too cold out there. And after the bomb had dropped in our neighborhood, we had a few irate neighbors coming around to our door saying, why didn't she blow her whistle? We were relying on it. So um, I had to keep doing it from then on. Um, your, your stepfather um, was, uh, became an alcoholic and became abusive. He, he beat your younger brother with a cane. You had your own run-in with your stepfather. Twice he came into your, your bedroom climbed into your bed and told you 
Well, he didn't climb into my bed, but he certainly made an advance. Um, thank God, at that point, he did not climb into my bed. And um, but, it, but, uh, it, but he told you that you needed to be taught how to kiss. Yes, he did. That was, um, uh, but he was not in my bed. Thank God, <laughs> that would have been very difficult. But I was able to. Um, you have to remember, he was an alcoholic, and and there were days when he wasn't an alcoholic, and he did a lot of things to um, to further my career, to try to help me in many ways. But, of course, because he was a stepfather, because he was seemingly a dangerous man in, in, in the family present, I didn't like him that much, particularly not at first. And uh, thank God he was decent enough somewhere to uh, pull back. And I, I was only abused in that he did try to kiss me, and he would have probably um, come into bed. But I had a lock put on the door and a few things like that, and it only happened twice. Mercifully. When your parents, when, when your mother and your stepfather brought you into their vaudeville act, um, who were you in the act? Like, what was your role? What kind of stuff did you sing? <laughs> uh, I think I started doing this. Um, my father began to give me singing lessons when I was about seven years old. My stepfather he was a fine singer, and my mother was a wonderful pianist. She and my stepfather formed this vaudeville act, which became pretty successful all around England and also on radio, which was very big in those days. And he began giving me singing lessons at the age of about seven and was so surprised to discover that I had a, you know, unusually powerful um, adult larynx. Um, he very quickly realized that it probably would be a smart thing to give me over to a fine singing teacher and uh, uh, that good lady was my teacher until the day she died at age 90-something or other. So for many, many decades, she was my teacher. Um, so when I went on the boards with my parents for the first time, I was about nine. And I was so small that they put me on a sort of um, wooden beer crate, I think, uh, or a bottle crate anyway, uh, to reach the microphone beside him and... Uh, we belted out a, a song called Come to the Fair, which was a duet, and it went down pretty well, and I seemed to enjoy it, and the audience seemed to love it, so uh, it, things progressed from there. Your, your, your singing teacher, who was your singing teacher for, for decades, uh, um, mm -hmm. um, you describe how she helped you place your voice. Can yes. You, can you describe a little bit what that process was? Oh, uh, well... It went on for many, many years, and uh, she gave me a great foundation, um, good placement of voice, good um, attention to lyrics, uh, particularly, well, uh, both vowels and consonants. If you, if you have trouble with a certain note, um, her um, technique was to practice usually uh, the note before it. The, the, um, if you have trouble hitting a high note at the end of a song, then work on the penultimate note, which with a good strong foundation and being placed correctly will allow the high note to follow it in exactly the same position and place. Um, as I say, vowels, one had to be very true to them um, and hold them firmly and precede them with strong consonants. Um, um, I say in the book, which is probably the best example I can give, um, we used to practice um, a lot of handles 
music because uh, he he also had uh, great words to his beautiful music, and we'd practice the Messiah, for instance. And um, if I was singing, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, I would do a very strong B on the behold, and the O of hold would be strong, and thy king, the TH, would be strong, and would pull the, the Y of thy forward, um, and following a note to its absolute end, and then just literally cutting off the breath so that you didn't swallow it at the end of the sound. Many, many, many details like that. It's so interesting that on the one hand, you're studying, you, you're getting this great classical training with your teacher, singing Handel, and at the same time, you're performing in your parents' vaudeville act. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, nice mix. my gimmick and my stock in trade in those days was to belt out somewhat, you know, cut and bastardized versions of the great arias. I sang um, Caranome from Rigoletto. I sang um, uh, the, the, the um, um, oh, I can't even remember now, um, the great aria from Traviata, um, um, Sempre Libre. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember the name for a second. And my great stock in trade was the um, Polonaise from the opera Mignon. And uh, that had a phenomenally high note at the end of it and uh, usually brought the house down. So it was almost like like a stunt, a kid singing all these difficult adult exactly. arias. Exactly. And, and um, you know, okay, when I finally went out in my own act at about age 15 and, and uh, my... my um, something rather sad happened, which was that my parents, uh, we used to be billed as uh, Ted and Barbara Andrews, my, my, my mother and my stepfather, with Julie. And uh, eventually the billing would say Julie Andrews with Ted and Barbara. And that must have just been dreadful for my stepfather. It must have, you know, castrated him dreadfully, I would think. Hmm. Well, you know, he, he he did some really bad things to you and your brother, but at the same time, he, he gave you the singing lessons. And, oh, he was he yeah. tried to be kind. I just wouldn't have any of it, I'm afraid, because I, as I say, he was a, he was overwhelming and um, yeah. a big man, a powerful man, yeah. and a little frightening in that sense. You um, went to New York at the age of about twenty. No, I nineteen. Uh, I came uh, in my uh, when I was just about to turn 19 um, and the show that I was in was a show called The Boyfriend um, um, a product that was brought uh, um, brought over from England and uh, the original cast was still playing in London to enormous success and the American producers were not able to uh, secure that cast for their show in New York so a completely new cast was uh, um, uh, you know assembled and I was lucky enough to be asked to play the leading role in The Boyfriend, and I was 19 the day after we opened. So the great notices that the show received were like the most wonderful birthday gift. And after doing The Boyfriend on Broadway, you did My Fair Lady. Yes. So um, did you have to audition, or did they just give you a part? Oh, gosh, no. No, I did many auditions. I sang for Alan Lerner, and then I went up to sing for Frederick Lowe with Alan. And um, then I read a lot of scenes and dialogue scenes with um, Alan, who somehow, God knows how, because I'd never done um, a play before. I'd never played a character. I'd never done a role in a really legitimate piece. All I knew 
was how to belt out an aria on a vaudeville stage, and uh, that was it. What about The Boyfriend? um, You'd been in that. Well, I'd done The Boyfriend, and I'd had a year's experience, that's true. But again, I I staggered through The Boyfriend, learning on my feet as I went. Mm -hmm. And then you can imagine that George Bernard Shaw was a hundred times, you know, stronger and more important than that, and I was really floundering. But I think because of my voice, because they sensed something, maybe, in my makeup, they felt that I could do Eliza, and so I was offered the role. I'm sure I wasn't the first, but I was the lucky one that landed it. You read in your book that you didn't know how to do a Cockney accent. (laughs) Yes. Which is funny. I mean, go ahead. Give me a break. I was so busy learning who I was and what I was doing and never had the opportunity to do that before. And I, although I had a very good ear and had perfect pitch and many things that helped me, so helped me, I couldn't do a Cockney accent. So who taught you? Uh, An American professor of phonetics, my own American Henry Higgins, a weird reversal of, of the Pygmalion story. And what's the first thing he, what's the basic principle he taught you? Um, Oh, gosh. Now, that's a hard question to answer. I don't think I can. Just literally taking me through the lines of the play and um, widening vowels, shortening them, dropping H's and all of those. I'm pretty sure that my general overall cockney was not great, but it got me by. perhaps more so in America because not many Americans know a genuine Cockney accent. But uh, I had a tougher time by the time I took the play to England, but by then I'd had a lot of learning experience, so I fared better. Did your coach give you advice on how to sing Wouldn't It Be Loverly? No. Uh, no. Funnily enough, um, he, he didn't, as far as I can recall. Alan Lerner had written the lyrics to sound Cockney, you know, ow, wouldn't it be lovely? So it was written and, like O-W? Uh, O-W-W, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or E-O-W, I'm not quite sure which, but whatever, it was It was um, written so that I knew it had to be sung, of course, in Cockney, and uh, just you white Henry Higgins and all of that was uh, written the same way. So that was not so difficult because, I, A, I was singing, and B... I'd learned enough from my dialect coach to know what I had to do. Well, why don't we hear Wouldn't It Be Loverly? <laughs> All I want is a room somewhere Far away from the cold night air With one enormous chair Wouldn't it be lovely Lots of chocolate for me to eat Lots of coal making lots of it Warm face, warm hands, warm feet Wouldn't it be lovely? Oh, so lovely Sitting absolutely still I would never budge till spring Crept over me windowsill Someone's head resting on my knee Warm and tender as he can be Who takes good care of me Wouldn't it be lovely Lovely, lovely, lovely 
that's Julie Andrews singing Wouldn't It Be Loverly from the original Broadway cast recording of My Fair Lady. Um, you know, it's such a, a, a really, like, lovely tune. Um, Isn't it pretty? Yeah. Did you, did when you were given the song to sing, did you say, great song, it'll be a classic? No. <laughs> I did say great song. I knew it was lovely. I knew all the music for My Fair Lady was wonderful. I knew it was special and uh, that these gentlemen were supremely talented. I mean... Can you imagine hearing I've grown accustomed to her face for the first time? Oh, man, what a great song. Julie Andrews speaking to Terry Gross in 2008. After a break, we'll continue their conversation, and I'll review the new season of Evil, the former CBS series now streaming on Paramount+. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, in for Terry Gross, back with more of Terry's 2008 interview with Julie Andrews. The singer, actress, and author is the latest recipient of the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award, honoring a movie career that began with Mary Poppins and the Sound of Music in the 1960s. She's acted in movies in every decade since. Here she is in one of her most famous performances. they have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. My heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake to my heart wants to sigh like a chime that flies from a church on a breeze. To laugh like a brook when it trips and falls over stones on its way. To sing through the night like a lark who is The Sound of Music provokes very strong reactions in people. People tend to just, like, love the film or, or not because they think it's too saccharine. So, I know. So where do, where do you fit in on the scale? I know how hard we all tried recognizing that there was a saccharine quality to it. I mean, you have a whole, you know, a whole family of children and a, and a, a nanny governess and a, and a lot of countryside and a lot of... Um, religious ladies <laughs> flying around the place, and you're going to get a bit of saccharine there, that's for sure. And we all knew that even though the music was lovely, um, that we had to play, if possible, against that saccharine quality. And I know that Christopher Plummer, I certainly, uh, we did our utmost to push it away somewhere. Uh, I, I remember distinctly one scene where I really wanted... Uh, Maria to be absolutely horrified that she was going to have to take care of seven children uh, because that's the way somebody would have reacted, I think. I mean, you know, being nanny to one child is enough, but seven. (laughs) So we did try, and we were aware that um, there were saccharine moments, but then the beauty of um, 
Sound of Music was that the, the scenery was so gorgeous and we did film in Austria and we had a symphony orchestra playing all that glorious music and uh, it. I think a, that saccharine quality was compensated for a million ways. Let me ask you about what might be the most famous shot from the film, which is used on advertising posters. And it's a picture of you while singing The Sound of Music with your arms out um, yes. twirling around <laughs> alone <Yes>. in the mountains. <laughs> That's right, in the very, very cold, rainy, wet mountains. T- t- talk, um, about, talk about that shot. Oh, um, well, that shot, the bulk of that shot was filmed from a helicopter. And I would start at one end of this long field, uh, and the helicopter would start at the other end of the field, and we would come towards each other. The very brave cameraman was hanging out of the side of the helicopter where the door would normally be, strapped in with a camera attached to his chest. And uh, the helicopter sort of came at me sideways, rather sort of crab-like, edging its way towards me um, as I walked towards it and executed that famous, now famous turn just before singing. And we did that shot many times to be sure that the focus was right and that everything about it was right. Um, But the trouble was that once that shot had been completed and we each went back to our own respective ends of the field to start again, the downdraft from the helicopter circling around me dashed me off my feet and into the grass. It was so strong. Now, this is fine for, you know, one or two takes, but... After about four or five takes, I began to get quite angry about it and uh, thought, you know, there must be a way that I don't have to be leveled every time we finish this shot. So I signaled to the pilot to please make a wider circle around me. And all I got was a thumbs up and, you know, great, I think we got it, but let's do it one more time. And I bit the dust and I sort of spat mud and hay and everything else for, for every single take of that particular shot. That's so great because the story behind the shot is so different than the shot itself. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. It's like you're suffering <laughs> to <laughs> do it. a lot of things about The Sound of Music that had that, though. I mean, the the weather was uh, not great uh, in the mountains particularly, and it rained a great deal of the time, and we we would sit under tarpaulins and, and manage to get through a day with sometimes just 30 seconds of film footage, and uh, it was cold and it was damp. But the clouds and their strength and the beauty that they brought to the um, to the to the film itself w- was a, a gift. That I mean, if we'd just been a sunny postcard, I mean, it was a postcard enough. But it gave texture to the movie, which helped enormously. You 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 had such a lovely singing voice, and you haven't been able to sing since about two thousand five. You had surgery to re- remove a node on one of your vocal cords and haven't been able to sing since. And I understand you sued your surgeon because of that. Um, I figure it must have been really difficult for you to not be able to sing. Um, I mean, obviously that affected you professionally, but just like personally and emotionally, what did it mean for you to not be able to do that anymore? Mm, it uh, it wasn't a node. I, I didn't uh, I didn't have um, cancerous nodes as so many people think I did. I just had um, um, a small um, sort of 
cyst in my, or seemingly I had a cyst in my vocal cords, and even that is now has been proved to be rather suspect. But I'm not allowed to talk about the operation itself, but because of, you know, um, lawyers and people like that would, would ask me not to. But I can tell you that it was, of course, devastating. I'm very glad it happened toward the end of my uh, singing life rather than at the beginning. I miss singing with an orchestra um, enormously. Uh I think I was in denial for a year or two, thinking that perhaps I was just taking longer to heal than most people, that my throat was a little more sensitive than most. But then there did come a day when I had to um, begin living with it, and I live with it to this day. Uh, I I guess in the sort of old tradition of vaudevillians, I could give up and uh, crawl away, or I could make what was left of my life something decent. And I wondered what I was meant to learn from it. Um, Perhaps there was a lesson in it all. God knows what that was. But I did begin to write more, and uh, it allowed me time to write this autobiography. And I've kept very busy. I seem to be busier these days than I've ever been, and I don't get it, but I'm extremely grateful. One more thing before we have to let you go. The 1982 movie Victor Victoria that you starred in, you, you played a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. <laughs> you played a woman pretending to be a, a man performing in drag. And with the help of that movie, as even the Wikipedia points out, you've become an icon for family films <laughs> and also something of an icon in, uh, in the gay and lesbian community because of Victor Victoria and maybe also because of Sing Along Sound of Music. Um, <laughs> seem to have sort of covered the whole spectrum somehow. So is that a surprise to you that, you, that you're both? Um, I'm delighted. I'm just thrilled by it. I, I think it's the nicest thing that could happen. And, you know, that, that uh, squeaky keen image which was brought about by such lovely films that were so successful, such as Poppins and, and uh, Sound of Music, uh, I'm hoping that the body of work that I've done since then has kind of dispelled that squeaky clean myth, but but um, I'm delighted to be embraced by by families, by kids, by the gay culture, by by everyone. And people are genuinely lovely when I meet them. I love going out and, and lecturing and meeting people and talking about my work and so on. It's a great pleasure. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. And you, Terry. Thank you so much. Julie Andrews speaking to Terry Gross in 2008. After a break, we'll listen to parts of a more recent conversation from 2019. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. The American Film Institute is honoring Julie Andrews with this year's Life Achievement Award. Now, we're going to replay parts of another conversation between the actress and Terry Gross. This one from 2019. In recent years, Julie Andrews has lent her voice to the Despicable Me and Shrek and Aquaman movies and the voice of Lady Whistledown on the Netflix TV series Bridgerton. And on camera, in 2017, she starred in Julie's Green Room, a Netflix children's series which she also co-created. When Julie Andrews returned to Fresh Air to talk with Terry, she had just released her second memoir. Co-authored with her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton, its title is Home Work, a memoir of my Hollywood years. Julie Andrews got her start in her parents' vaudeville act when she was nine years old. 
one of the reasons uh, I really enjoy it when I'm working because I've worked my entire life. I mean, to the ex- to the point where I really wasn't attending school. I had to have a tutor that came t- and 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 worked with me. But I really I would love to have attended university, and I had a very sort of rarefied and rather. A pitiful education in a way, my mother said to me, oh, you'll get a much better education from life out there. And to a certain extent, I did. But I was always scrambling to catch up on on history or things that really fascinated me. Julie, you started psychoanalysis after you were mm-hmm. in a committed relationship with Blake Edwards. And I can't remember if this is before or after you were, you were actually married. But Basically, the way you describe before. it before, when you when you started psychoanalysis, mm. it's like a dam opened up. I mean, you just started like weeping, <laughs> and and I'm wondering if you felt you had to hold in a lot of feelings and just be strong and not show any vulnerability because one, you grew up during the war years. You were living in London during World War II when you were getting bombed all the time. And you were going in and out of bomb shelters. You were blowing a whistle and literally warning people when the planes were coming <laughs> when you were a child. Um, and then you're a child and you're touring with your parents in vaudeville performing and the show must go on no matter what. So did that kind of teach you to to just like hold everything in? Yes, absolutely. Uh, whatever it was that I'd been sort of being stiff up a lip about in my in my youth and I did take care of most of my family uh, in every sense uh, financially and and you know emotionally uh, because we were you know my stepfather was um, alcoholic and uh, it was not an easy situation but but there was a lot that I needed to sort out in my head and the failure of my first marriage which hurt a lot and um i wasn't sure about anything and i was it uh, the wonder is that my wonderful therapist suddenly realized that what i craved probably more than anything was an education and so being a merlin like personality he decided to give me one and i got uh, so many answers in terms of some of the things in life that i needed to learn and it was a phenomenal experience for me. If I wanted to learn about uh, astronomy or geology or uh, or anything in life, uh, uh, you know, history, geography, uh, just I could ask any question and he would be able to answer it. So Blake Edwards became your husband, but he also directed you in several films. He directed you mm-hmm. in um, SOB, which was a, a satire of... Uh, Hollywood in 10, which was a romantic comedy, uh, Victor Victoria, in which... About you, midlife crisis. And midlife really. crisis yeah. for the men, yeah. Uh, Victor Victoria, which you played a woman impersonating a man in drag. <laughs> you know, also a impersonating comedy. Impersonating a woman, right. Yes, yeah. yeah, so, and you have a, a great uh, show-stopping uh, number in that. But he saw you really differently than the preconception that people had well, I, of, of I Julie guess Andrews. that having having me as a wife and our sleeping together and being uh, a great we were married uh, uh, for, well we knew each other 44 years before he sadly passed away but uh, he was 
somebody that knew me very, very well, and I think I knew him very well. This was a marriage that lasted, and it was complicated and wonderful and quite magical at times, and he was the most mercurial, talented, attractive man, and uh, it was quite an experience to be married to Blake Edwards, believe me. But, I mean, just getting back to him directing you, you you were topless in one scene in one of his films. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of, like, you know, uh, gender... well, gender stuff going on in Victoria. So yeah, it's the, very daunting, Terry, when your husband says in a love scene that you're doing with with your leading man on camera. He says, "Well, that's fine, darling, but I I know you can do it better." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's it's rather difficult in the film studio when you're filming it. Julie Andrews speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. The American Film Institute has bestowed her with this year's Life Achievement Award in a celebration to be televised next Thursday on TNT. Coming up, I review season three of Evil, the TV series returning Sunday on Paramount+. Plus. It's from Robert and Michelle King, creators of The Good Wife and The Good Fight. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David B. and Cooley. Robert and Michelle King, the husband and wife production team who created The Good Wife and its still-running sequel series, The Good Fight, return this Sunday with the third season of another drama series. It's called Evil, and like The Good Fight, it's presented by the streaming service Paramount+. Plus. But Evil didn't originate there. It started on the CBS broadcast network. And the series has taken full advantage of the relocation from one platform to another. Evil premiered on CBS in 2019, pre-pandemic. It's kind of like a more spiritual version of The X-Files, featuring a team of experts assigned to assess the validity of a series of unexplained phenomena, including reports of demonic possession and angelic visions. There's an aspiring Catholic priest, David Acosta, played by Mike Coulter, a tech expert, Ben Shakir, played by Asif Manvi, and a psychologist, Kristen Bouchard, played by Katya Herbers. The tech expert is a skeptical debunker, the man of the faith tends to believe, and the psychologist is all over the place. Sometimes she's a rational doctor. Other times, she is so fiercely protective of her four daughters, she could kill. And at least once in this series, she already has. But Kristen wields less deadly weapons as well, such as legal documents. The team's longtime nemesis on this show is Leland Townsend, a smarmy guy who's used his influence to getting good with the local church, even though he's an agent for, well, evil. Leland is played by Michael Emerson, who was so wonderful on the ABC series Lost. And he's wonderful here, too. In the third season premiere, Leland is in a meeting with the Monsignor and the other members of Kristen's team when Kristen enters suddenly, envelope in hand, and walks right up to Leland, nose to nose. Yes, Ms. Bouchard? Hello. Hello, would you mind backing up a few feet? (laughs) What is this? Restraining order. You've been served. Monsignor, can't we settle our disagreements without these ad hominem attacks? Mr. Shard, this is not necessary. Oh, it's not a restraining order for me. I can take care of myself. 
It's for my 11-year-old daughter. Excuse me? Mr. Townsend has approached my daughter at school on four separate occasions, and he's asked her to keep it a secret from me. No, this is... He's also I... made her uncomfortable with his touch. I did not. What are you talking about? This is insane. Luckily, one of my daughters took a photo, and that is why the court granted me this injunction. That, that is a misinterpretation. Well, I guess it's a good thing that the Catholic Church has no issues with older men touching children. Kristen hardly seems like herself these days. And sometimes she isn't. She could be possessed or imaginary or impersonated by a demon. In defending her children and investigating her cases, she's found and embraced a new inner strength. But she's also fighting her inner desires. Because even though she's married, she's attracted to David, who has just joined the priesthood officially. The attraction is mutual. And David suffers from visions or fantasies, which include Kristen visiting his bed at night and climbing on top of him. And because this show is so paranormal, you're not sure whether David's nightly encounters are fantasies. And neither is he. They could be real, or demonic, or both. Hello? Over here. You're not real. Exactly. Check your catechism. This isn't forbidden. Unless you want it to be forbidden. Unless you want me to do things to you that are truly forbidden. I've seen the first five episodes from this new season three, and they manage to be outrageously funny in some spots and genuinely scary in others. Everything works in concert here. The writing by series creators Robert and Michelle King and others is clever enough to keep you constantly second-guessing, even third-guessing. The acting is terrific all down the line. The show lost Peter Scolari, who died between seasons, but Andrea Martin, as a nun who sees demons, has stepped up as a major factor in this season's storyline. And just as with Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy in Schitt's Creek, it's great to see another old Second City veteran making the most of a meaty new role. Also hitting nothing but home runs here, Christine Lottie as Kristen's mother. This season especially, she's been able to do a few things and say a lot of things that she could never have come near on CBS. I can't play you any examples, but in this new season, Evil may have become the most profane TV series since Deadwood. But sex scenes with demonically forked tongues and dialogue that blisters with intensity and profanity aren't the only changes in this Paramount Plus version of Evil. Each member of the team is questioning his or her faith and sanity. And the stakes of the battles, and not just against Leland, have only increased, as one of his evil allies points out to our three heroes in a chillingly topical warning. Have you ever noticed people are getting meaner? They yell at each other more. They hit each other on airplanes. They're more violent crimes. You must have noticed, it's all over the news. You know what it means? All this anger and hate? It means your team is losing. 
that doom you feel, it's justified. The series' theme song for evil builds and builds, getting more foreboding all the time, just like the show itself. Evil is one of the two best TV series to have begun on broadcast TV, moved to a streaming service, and gotten even bolder and more ambitious and entertaining as a result. The other is The Good Fight, which started on CBS in 2017, moved immediately to CBS All Access, and now also resides on Paramount+, Plus, where it will return for its sixth and final season in September. It, too, like Evil, is a series created by Robert and Michelle King, who clearly have proven themselves to be the reigning kings of both broadcast and streaming TV. On Monday's show, MSNBC anchor and NBC News correspondent Katie Turr. In a new book, she writes about her childhood, early professional career, and family relationships. Her father, she says, was a charismatic and talented reporter, but also had a volatile temper. Her dad came out as a trans woman in 2013. Turr's book is Rough Draft, a memoir. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by letting us know how you listen and completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. We'd really appreciate your help to support NPR podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Thank you.